I invite you to open your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning. Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 39. Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And our text this morning is verses 22 through 25. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we just witnessed the baptism of McKenna Jane Faber. And in the first prayer before the baptism, we prayed for her. We prayed that she, following him, that is Christ, day by day, may joyfully bear her cross and cleave to him in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. Now, an ardent love is a love that is eager or intense. So, we prayed for McKenna. We prayed that she would have that kind of a life. What would that sort of life look like? It's not necessarily an easy one, and that's acknowledged in that prayer as well when you look at the line that follows. Grant that she, comforted in you, may leave this life, which is no more than a constant death, and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ your Son. Those are sobering words. It's quite something to be born into a world and then to confess that it is a, a life which is no more than a constant death. And how does that work? How can you on the one hand acknowledge that life can be very difficult, while on the other hand joyfully bearing your cross and Cleaving or clinging to Christ in true faith, firm hope and ardent love. How do you follow Jesus with a holy confidence? The first readers of this letter to the Hebrews were struggling with that confidence. It seems that in the past there had been fervent believers. That's alluded to in verses 32 through 34. When it says that in the early days when they were new to the faith... They had overcome enormous difficulties. It says that they had been in prison. They had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, so, so their possessions had been taken away. They'd been persecuted, and yet they were so caught up in the joy of knowing Christ that all of these things seemed minor by comparison. But then by the time that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews wrote them, they were struggling. Their struggles seem to have worn them down. So what's the best way to encourage people like that? People who are called to go through life with true faith, firm hope, and ardent love, but who are, who are feeling burdened, who are struggling. Well, the writer, in a sense, reminds them of what they already know. He tells them to refocus on Jesus Christ. Because it's only in constantly focusing on Christ that they'll be able to persevere in the faith. It's like that old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, if you've ever heard that one before. So how does he go about doing that? How does he go about turning the eyes of his viewers on Jesus, his readers? Well, he goes to great lengths to show them who Jesus Christ really is and what he has done. And so all of the things that he writes to them are directly applicable to us as well. And so he encourages them and therefore also us to follow Jesus with a holy confidence. And that's, that will be our approach to the text this morning, that we're called to follow Jesus with a holy confidence, and we'll see that that means following in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. So our reading begins with the word, therefore, and that word draws a conclusion from what came before. In six chapters previously, the writer has spent time explaining how Jesus is the ultimate high priest, how he is the ultimate sacrifice, 
And then he, in a sense, recaps that, recapitulates that in verses 19 through 21 of our reading. He says in verse 19, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now you think about what that means. If you're familiar with the structure of old covenant worship, and most of you would be, then you know that, that you had the courtyard and then the holy place and the tabernacle and then the most holy place, which is where the ark was. It was ground zero of the presence of God on earth. It was where God sat enthroned over the ark of the covenant. And it was only once per year that the high priest went into there on the Day of Atonement to ask for forgiveness of the sins of the people, and he had to take along the blood of a bull. No one else was allowed to go into the most holy place, and if they did, they would have died instantly. Later, rabbinic tradition says that when the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement, then they would tie a a rope to his ankle. So that if he became incapacitated or maybe was even struck down, then, um, then the other priests on duty could pull him out without having to go in. They took it that seriously. And yet verse 19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. You think about that. Not just the, the most holy place of the old covenant, but the very presence of God himself. And from that Old Testament perspective, it's really very striking that he would would put these two words together. Confidence and holy places are not two words that you would expect in the same sentence. Certainly not um, as, uh, as someone who had grown up in the Jewish faith. And yet our writer does that. How is that possible? How is it possible to have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus? Well, because of Jesus, who was the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin, the final and ultimate high priest, as verse 21 tells us. He went, so to speak, into the most holy place, not just of the earthly temple, but the heavenly one, the presence of God himself. So when we think about our theme, think about following Jesus, the very first place where Jesus calls us to follow is the one place where we would have never expected to go, and that is the very presence of God. And not just later when we die, but even now in prayer. The basic point of verse 22 is that believers can enter the presence of God. They can draw near to God and they can do so in a state of purity with our hearts sprinkled clean of an evil conscience. That sprinkling is a tie again to the Old Testament service. The writer is echoing something he said in the last chapter in Hebrews 9 verse 13 to 14. There he wrote, he wrote, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, if the people in the Old Testament under the old covenant, we're already purified by the blood of an animal. How much more are we as believers under the new covenant purified by the blood of Christ? The Old Testament animal sacrifices involved a lot of blood. And yes, it was possible to experience genuine forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. It was possible to come to God in a state of ritual purity. But that was where it ended. 
Every time that you came before God to ask for forgiveness, you had to bring another animal to be sacrificed. It was this constant stream of blood coming from, from the altar. And now Jesus gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice for us. And it, it, it says, it's, it's as if we have been sprinkled with his blood. In other words, our purification of sin is complete and total. Because it's a total purification, he says, it also includes purification from an evil conscience. Now, that's an interesting expression. To be purified from an evil conscience, what does it mean? Well, it suggests that it's not just the moral guilt of sin that is cleansed, but also our subjective perception of that sin. In other words, a troubled conscience is also cleansed by Christ. When God forgives, he does so fully. If your sins have been truly forgiven, then there's no reason for you to feel guilty about them anymore. You may still feel a sense of regret, deep regret sometimes about the consequences, but you can rest assured if you are forgiven, if you're purified by the blood of Christ, there is no more guilt for you. Now, so sometimes people can still struggle with a lingering sense of guilt. And if that's you, you should ask yourself why. Because sometimes that can be because there is still unconfessed sin in your life. The Canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 5, says that when people sin against God, they wound their conscience. It can be so bad that they even lose the sense of God's favor. And then the only way back is through sincere repentance. So if you, if you live with guilt in your life, it could be because you haven't fully grasped the extent of what Christ has done for you, but it could also be that you have unconfessed sin in your life. And then the text calls us to repent. When we repent, we can have absolute certainty of forgiveness. That comes out strongly in the last half of, of um, verse 22, which refers to having our bodies washed with pure water. That water symbolizes a promise from God that he will cleanse us from all of our sins. So verse 22 is suggesting to us when we struggle with approaching God in prayer, when we wonder whether or not his forgiveness is real, what are we supposed to think of? We are supposed to think of our baptism. We need to understand that baptism constitutes a promise of cleansing and that this promise is ours by faith. And of course, this afternoon, we hope to pay closer attention to that when we cover Lord's Day 26. So to, so to sum it up, verse 22 calls us to draw near to God. It says, this is what you should do, and you are able to do this because of Jesus Christ. And that, can shape, that shapes our attitude in how we approach God. We can follow Jesus into God's presence confidently. But there's always the other side of that, that that we do so because of the blood of Christ. And so our confidence is, is a confidence in Christ, but it can never be self-confidence. There's no room in our worship for being casual or brash. And it's something for us to keep in mind when we gather together for worship. We live in a, a time when the, the broader sort of Christian, worldwide Christian community has become very casual in worship. And none of the None of the reverence, the gravitas of, of, of what our passage presents here is present anymore in that kind of worship. But we should, we should contemplate these words because we are not immune from it. 
Maybe formerly we can be very reverent, but sometimes as Christians we can still come to church with a sense of entitlement in our heart. Some Christians do that. They hear the gospel every week, but it doesn't register anymore. And we do that in more areas in life. Many of us have a delicious plate of hot food for dinner every night. But how many times do you actually stop to think about what you're eating? We'll get used to it. We'll get used to the food just showing up. And, and then we develop the sense of entitlement. You go through the motions of eating, but you're not really tasting the food. You're kind of there, but not really. But you just assume that it'll show up. And sometimes Christians can do that with worship as well. They come to church, they go through the motions, they're mentally not really present. Sometimes they sleep. There's no real sense of reverence there. Our text says, when you draw near to God, you need to do it with a true heart. What does it mean? We should be careful not to misunderstand what he says. Because when we read a true heart, we think about it from our own cultural perspective, and we think that it means a heart which is sincere. To us, sincerity means characterized by genuine feelings. And so we think, well, a true heart is one where, where you really feel that this is real, but that's not actually what it means. Feelings are not a gauge, a reliable gauge of truth. In fact, feelings are probably the worst gauge for establishing what truth is. It's possible to be very sincere and to be dead wrong in your beliefs. You've probably met people like that yourself. Some people are very sincere in what they believe, but they're also completely wrong. And, and yet this, this idea that, that sincerity is, is the guiding sort of benchmark is conveyed by a lot of modern Christianity. So in worship, they try to recreate an environment which, which makes you feel intense feelings, and then that becomes the focus of worship. But that is not actually a reliable guide to truth. It's not a reliable guide to anything, really. A true heart in the sense of this passage is one that is loyal and devoted to God as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So the opposite of that truth is actually unbelief. Full assurance. How do you get full assurance? Full assurance is certainty in what Christ has done. Full assurance is certainty in what Christ has done for you. Full assurance is what you get when everything else that props up your faith falls away and Christ alone remains in your life and Him and His works stand out clearly. Only then can you follow Him in holy confidence and only then can you cling to Him in firm hope. And that's our second point. Verse 23 it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, what's this hope? Usually, when you use the word hope, it means the same thing as having a wish. For example, if I'm driving along the road and I see a flash, I might hope that it wasn't a speed camera. That's one form of hope. It's basically a wish. But the word hope can also refer to something that you expect, something that you know is real. It could, for example, be in a hospital with a, a very dangerous disease, but you know that there's one drug on the market that can cure you. You know that the drug has a 100% success rate. So you put all of your hope in this drug. You expect that this will cure you from your disease. That kind of hope is something different. It's a hope with an expectation of certainty behind it. And that's how he uses the word hope 
in verse 23. In Hebrews, the, the word hope never just refers to a feeling. It refers to the content of hope. It refers to the certainty of hope. In this case, it refers to Christ's priestly activity for you. That's why it's a hope that you profess. Verse 23 calls us to hold on to that hope without wavering. The idea is that you don't deviate to the right or to the left. Think of a parent holding to the hand of a toddler. If you've ever walked along a sidewalk with a toddler, then you know the toddlers are not very steady in how they walk, right? They kind of have this sort of unbalanced gait to them. But as long as they hold on to your finger and you hold on to their hand, they're safe. So where does their stability come from? It comes from your hand. And that's a little bit like what verse 23 is telling us. It's not just telling us first make sure that you're not wavering and only then hold on to the hope that you have. No, it's telling us to hold on without wavering. But the strength to hold on, the strength to not waver comes from that hope itself. That's why it makes sense what the writer of this letter is doing. He's writing to these people that are discouraged and he refocuses them on what they already know. He reminds them of it again. And in fact, a lot of worship is simply reminding you week after week of what you already know, but understanding it deeper, holding on to it more tightly. And you cannot have confidence if you do not hold on to this hope as a Christian. Everything else, every other form of religious confidence is fake. If it's not grounded in this hope of who Jesus is and what he's done. And maybe confidence is something that you are struggling with. You're sitting here this morning and you don't feel very confident in your faith, your life as a Christian. And if that is you, it would be worthwhile to stop and ask yourself, what is holding you back? What's holding you back? Is there maybe hidden sin in your life? Is it maybe something subtle like your general attitude towards God and his promises? Could it be that there's an underlying unbelief? Or are you feeling cognitive dissonance because you've relied on the wrong things for hope and you know that that's not a real firm foundation but you can't work your way out of it and you feel uncertain? Is it possible maybe that you're beginning to discover that your hope in life was misplaced? Well, then verse 23 reorients us again, it gives us the only basis for hope. It says, he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. That's always the, the one thing that you hold on to. And the Bible is full of the promises of God. God's a great promise maker, the great promise keeper. It's what he does. Take Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, for instance. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Or Psalm 145, verse 13, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Or 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Bible, those are just three random texts. The Bible reminds us of God's faithfulness all over the place. It's his fingerprints on every page. God is faithful. Any promise he makes is guaranteed to be fulfilled. He has a track record of 100% completion. He has never failed in keeping any of his promises. And so when he makes a promise and you rely on that, you, you can build your life on that. You can depend on that. It will be fulfilled in time. 
You might not see it right away, and it can be discouraging sometimes. The, letter, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews acknowledges that. And uh, he go, if you go on, look at chapter 11, verse 13, he, he talks about all those believers in the past. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Why does God wait so long? Well, it's not always possible for us to know. But maybe sometimes it is to teach us to place our confidence only in Him. Consider the life of Abraham as an example. He waited until Abram's confidence was only in Him. Everything else in life failed Him. Finally, all He had left was God and His promises, and they stood out in crystal clarity to Him. But it took a long time to get there. If there is uncertainty, it is on our side, though, not God's. Remember the audience? He's writing to people that were wavering, people that were struggling, people that were wondering, well, is this really? Have I misunderstood something? Did I miss something? And he says to them later on in verses 30, 35 and 36, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't, don't give up. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. God does not waver. This is why we need to hold on to him. He doesn't call us to believe in the strength of our own faith. He doesn't call us to believe in the strength of our imagination. He calls us to believe on the strength of his word. He very simply gives us the promises in his word. And he tells us to hold on to those. Only then can you follow Jesus with a holy confidence. Following Jesus means following him in true faith. It means following him in firm hope. And it means following him in ardent love. We'll look at that next. Anything that affects our relationship with God is also going to affect our relationship with our neighbor. So verse 24 touches on that. Let us consider how to stir up one another, our fellow believer, our neighbor in Christ. Now, the Bible in many places tells us to, to love our neighbor. So it's kind of what you would, would have expected if you were reading here. But he doesn't do that. He takes a different tack. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love. In other words, how do we encourage our fellow believers to love one another? It's actually a very interesting question. We're used to being told that we must love each other, but this is actually something quite different. He's actually calling us to stir each other up to love and good works. In other words, how, do you, how can you as believers in your church community Stir each other up. Bring out the best in each other. How can you motivate each other to love and good works? It's actually a tremendous challenge if you think about it. How do you do this? And the word that he uses here is really interesting as well in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word stir up actually means to provoke. It often has a very negative connotation. And we, we sometimes use it in a negative sense as well. But it can also be used positively. 
And that's what he's doing here. Let us consider how to prod each other on, to, to stir each other up, to provoke each other, to rouse each other to activity. And he's saying this to us. Let us consider how we, with our behavior, with our life, can stir up one another to love and to good works. What would that look like? Well, there was a story in a local newspaper once about a man who, who um, went to the hospital for a treatment, had an emergency, he needed to be treated. And he was so impressed by what he saw, by the quality of care that he received, that when he was discharged, he came back as a volunteer to volunteer in the hospital and to work beside the people that had helped him. He wanted to be a part of what he, he saw. He was so impressed by that. And that kind of thing can happen in a church setting as well. We've seen it happen before when there's a busy bee, for example, on the church grounds. Everybody comes together and they want to pitch in and help. And if, if you were on your own and you had to do all of that work, you would feel resentful. But because everybody else is doing it, the excitement becomes contagious, right? You've got this, this, this kind of atmosphere. It rubs off and you want to be a part of it. And our text is suggesting that the whole Christian life is meant to be like that. Are you living in a way that makes your fellow believers excited about the gospel, excited about church, excited about serving each other? How can you do this? Now, it goes without saying that you cannot give or receive this kind of fellowship if you don't show up, if you don't come to church. Verse 25 says, do not neglect to meet one another. Instead, let, let us encourage one another. In this context, this kind of encouragement means to, to remain faithful, especially in attending worship. It's a, an incredibly encouraging thing to, to come here and to see all of the cars come into the parking lot and to see all of the other believers gathered together. You sit down on your pew and you realize this is where I belong. And that also made it difficult for us, uh, many of us, to worship when, uh, when we were locked down at home because you're on your own, you're isolated. And if you were one of the small group of people that came here early on, the, the, the building was empty for the most part. And it's depressing, it's not encouraging. And so that's the sort of thing that he's alluding to, that, that you can encourage each other by coming, by worshiping together, by remaining faithful. And there's also a, a, another side to that. It, it's not just to drum up support, but it's also, it, it's deeper than that. Because he says, um, not neglecting to meet together can also be translated, not, do not, let us not abandon meeting together. And abandon is a very strong word because um, abandoning is something that you normally only do with covenants. You abandon your covenant obligations. And so with that perspective, what he says afterwards makes sense, right? He warns us about not falling away. And it, it makes it very serious. So verse 25 is not just saying, you know, all come together here because, well, that's what everyone else does. It's saying this is important because it's part of your covenant obligations as a believer. It's fundamental to your faith, to your walk of life as a Christian that you gather together here for regular worship because if you fall into the habit of sporadic church attendance, 
then it will have long-term consequences for your spiritual health. That's what he's warning us about. Afterwards, there's a real undertone of warning in, in verse 25. He says, it's possible for you to begin to drift. The bottom line is, it is impossible for you to thrive as a Christian without active participation in a church community. Of course, you can have uh, faith. We think, of, we think of people in closed countries. You know, sometimes they think they're the only believer in a city until they, until they meet other believers. It's possible for people to only have a very limited number of people that they, that they know that are Christians. And then obviously a normal church life is, is not possible, but that's, not, that's the exception. That's not meant for, for us to follow as a model. Typically, you cannot thrive as a Christian without active participation in your church community. And that means that it's on all of us to keep an eye on each other. That's what the encouragement in verse 25 is about as well. If you see people on the fringes, and they are there also in this church, and if you don't know who they are, then that's probably because you haven't paid attention. But if you see people on the fringes, you need to draw them back in. And that requires you to know who these people are. So, in a sense, there's an indirect call here to build relationships with each other in the church community. Occupying the same pew, breathing the same air in the same building is not the same thing as sharing a relationship. You need to take time to build a relationship with people, especially ones that you don't know in church, because your encouragement and warnings will be better received if there is already an existing relationship. There's nothing more off-putting than to have someone come to you who's never taken the time to talk to you before, and now they want to have a serious conversation about how you're straying. That's not how these things work. Don't make your first conversation with someone be one where you admonish them. So, so how do we encourage people? What's the fastest way to do it? Well, you build a relationship with someone, and one of the most encouraging things you can do in a relationship is praying for them. Now, we're good at promising that we'll pray for each other, and uh, presumably we do do that, and that is encouraging. But it's even more encouraging if you do it on the spot. Have you ever had an intense conversation with someone about a difficult burden in their life? And, and then you the conversation wraps up, but you feel like it, w- it wouldn't be right to just leave or to switch over to small talk. So when you're at that point, that's the time to pray together. And it doesn't have to be awkward. You can just say something like, thanks for sharing all of that with me. Shall we pray about it before you go? And most of the time, the person will say yes. For all of the times that I personally have volunteered to pray with people, no one has ever said No. They, they might be surprised because they're not expecting it. It's not always something that we do. You catch them off guard some, 